In the winter of 1922, a bizarre series of events fell across an isolated Nova Scotian farmhouse, leaving the locals grappling with a set of mysteries that were as terrifying as they were exciting. Unseen forces braided horses' tails and moved livestock, while bluish lights danced eerily around the property. And soon, the situation escalated to a series of unexplained fires igniting within the farmhouse, forcing the occupants to flee their home amidst a harsh Canadian winter. As the press descended onto the farm, a series of investigations sought to dig deeper into the events, hoping to find answers for the phenomena and exonerate the occupants in the eyes of the locals. Though their successes were mixed in their results, and the answers given would prove to be inconclusive for many, leaving Canadian folklore with a new mystery. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 7, Episode 16. I'm your host as always, Ben. It's good to be back. Before we get started, I do want to just give a quick heads up. Anyone that listens on Spotify, that whole saga has finally come to an end and I believe you should be able to find the entire back catalogue is back on Spotify, all the episodes back on Spotify. If you don't know what I'm talking about and you don't listen on Spotify, don't worry about it. Uh, It was just an issue that, like a technical issue we had that um, seemed to affect all the Spotify episodes. Uh, For a while, the the podcast was disappeared and then it was back, but missing about 150 episodes. But now we're all back. Everything's there. So hopefully that will put an end to that little saga. Anyway, let's just move on. This week's episode is called Mary Ellen MacDonald and the Haunting of Caledonia Mills. Lying in the northeastern area of Canada's Nova Scotia, Antigonish County has a long history of human settlement, with evidence of an indigenous population that dates back almost 9,000 years. Acadian, French and Irish made up much of the early European settler population, and then later, towards the end of the 18th century, large waves of Scots arrived, lending to a strong and persistent Celtic cultural links throughout the area, including in language and folklore. A dramatically rural area in the 19th century, the entire county hosted a population of around 11,000, spread out across 500 square miles, many of whom worked the land, farming the fertile grounds, logging or fishing in the still grey seas of its long Atlantic coastline. The winter of 1922 was a cold one throughout the region. Bitter winds drove temperatures well below freezing, and frequent heavy snowfalls made many areas of the already isolated countryside practically impassable for all but the most well-prepared. Outside of the 1800 residents of Antigonish Town in the centre of the county, small farmhouses dotted throughout the rolling hills cast dim lights out into the darkness, illuminating lonely clearings and fields with the light from wood-burning stoves and oil lamps. Caledonia Mills sat 15 miles southeast of Antigonish. Named after its early industry, it was a small rural string of farmhouses and mills, a postal office and wood frame schoolhouse, originally settled by an enterprising family of loggers in the early 19th century. The Macdonald family, headed up by John and Margaret, were, like many Antigonish county families, one of farming stock. Their farm, situated around two miles outside of Caledonia Mills, consisted of a farmhouse and several small outbuildings, including a small barn for livestock and sheds for tools and the all-important horse-drawn sleigh that would link them to the rest of the county throughout the harsh winter months. 
Alexander MacDonald took over the family's farmhouse duties after his father's death in 1868, where he lived and settled with his own wife, Janet, whom he married five years later in 1873. After they had a daughter in 1887, Alexander built a new two-storey wooden-framed house on the grounds of the original farmhouse. It was a simple but solid construction, made to hold out against the elements. Downstairs, the front door opened into a large parlour area that led into a smaller dining room, complete with a wood-burning stove, and in the corner, a door to a small bedroom. A second, large room housing the kitchen lay on the far side of the house. In the parlour, a short staircase led to an unfinished loft area. The loose, but like the rest of the house, remarkably firm floorboards were placed over the beams from the floor below to create a second bedroom, along with another loft space above the kitchen, only reachable through the boards in the kitchen ceiling. Cut off from electricity and running water like the majority of Antigonish farmhouses, it was a simple estate built with an air of practicality. Outside of the farmhouse was a courtyard and 30 metres from the front door stood the MacDonald barn which housed all the livestock, cattle, horse, sheep and poultry. The whole estate sitting in a small clearing surrounded by dense woods. Alexander and Janet lived on the farm with their daughter Mary for several years. However, after Janet's mother was dumped unceremoniously into the local asylum by Janet's brothers, Janet took it upon herself to remove her into the MacDonald farmhouse to live with her in 1899. As well-meaning as it had seemed at first, Janet soon faced the difficult reality that had led her brothers to turn her over to the doctors, as her mother's dementia placed enormous strain on the family. Throughout the nights, Mrs Cameron would frequently let herself out into the clearing and wander around lost, and when she wasn't out roaming, she would often sit in her room, screaming to herself. For Alexander, who didn't want Mrs Cameron there in the first place, it was an obvious source of tension, and Janet struggled with the proper knowledge of how to care for her mother, choosing to tie her to the bed and lock her in her room. Looking after her mother was a huge strain on Janet, who found 24-7 care to be more stressful than she was expecting, especially on top of all the normal farmhouse work. On the morning of April the 28th, less than six months after her mother had arrived, Janet found her lying dead in her bed. Mrs Cameron had been sick for several years and at 87 years old was especially frail but that didn't stop the rumours from flowing around the community. The night before, the McDonalds were apparently entertaining guests when one of them overheard Janet yell at her mother that she hopes the devil in hell comes and took her before the morning. At the same moment, a black dog was said to have walked through the kitchen vanishing into Miss Cameron's room. Rumours flew of the powerful omen apparating and then disappearing into nothingness, whilst others whispered quiet suspicions that Janet had smothered her mother with a pillow, sick of taking care of her, though all of these murmurings remained nothing more than whispered local rumours. Mrs Cameron's death was recorded as natural, the McDonald's were never investigated, and the black dog was never seen nor heard from again. Following her mother's death, Life continued on quietly on the MacDonald farm. Alexander and Janet grew older, as did their daughter Mary, who reached adulthood and the rumours of anything strange disappeared from memory. The MacDonald's good reputation for socialising and getting along in the community eventually returned. In 1910, with their own daughter, now 23 years old, the MacDonald's decided to take on a young orphan named Mary Ellen. Mary Ellen had been one of four children born to relatives Annie and John Peter MacDonald from Westville 
in nearby Pictou County. Like many others in Pictou, John Peter had worked in a coal mine until an accident at work ended his life prematurely, leading Annie to look for alternative parental situations for her four children. Mary Ellen was four years old when she was spirited away from her busy surroundings in Pictou to the isolated world of the MacDonald farm, two miles from their nearest neighbours, where for a dozen years she grew up in obscurity before a series of bizarre events in the winter of 1922 which shine a bright light upon the little farmstead and catapult Mary Ellen onto the pages of newspapers across the continent. Two years after Mary Ellen moved into the farmhouse, a series of long-running strange events began to take place on the farm, though for a long while no one ever really paid much attention or put them all together into a grander narrative. It all started innocently enough. Strange noises would be heard within the house, bangs, roars, and even a sound described as dragging chains. But by and large, they were put down to the environment and ignored. Later, laundry would seemingly go missing, or the horse's saddle in the shed would disappear and reappear. On the strangest occasion, it was found buried by the tree line in the surrounding woods. Things turned slightly darker when Alexander opened the door to step out into the courtyard to get on with his morning chores, only to find a dead lamb laying on the step in a pool of blood with its throat slit. A few years earlier, and even this bizarre event could have been easily explained, Janet's brother, a notable local alcoholic, had been tossed out on his ear by Janet one night after he had once again turned up drunk, expecting the family's charity after he had been sacked from yet another temporary job. As he strode off into the night, he had turned back towards the farm and hurled a torrent of abuse at Janet, cursing her for a lack of familial compassion. If Janet's brother had still been alive, the dead lamb could easily have been attributed to him. However, he had died two years earlier in the local asylum. As far as they were aware, the McDonald's didn't have any other enemies in the area, but the dead lamb was certainly disturbing. Eventually, it did get forgotten about, along with the strange noises and disappearing items that continued, albeit sporadically, over the next nine years. It wasn't until March of 1921, with the bizarre events kicking up a gear, did anyone start to think that there may have been something wrong. That spring had been another cold season, and despite the winter receding over the horizon, a bitter frost still settled across the countryside overnight. Every morning, Alexander stepped out from the farmhouse into the cold air to release the animals from the barn where they had been locked in for the night. That March, the animals had seemingly found some way to let themselves out. As morning after morning, the cows would be found loitering in the yard, cold from standing out in the open for hours. How they had managed to escape was beyond Alexander. They were shut in and surrounded with heavy timber stanchions, pegged together with solid wooden struts, in order to stop them from roaming, yet somehow the heavy beams were found scattered across the floor and the cows free. After the same result for several nights running, Alexander reinforced the stanchions, wrapping haywire around the legs, intertwining them tightly in place, and yet, just as before, the cows would be found in the morning, bumbling around in the courtyard. Before long, rumours started flowing around the farms surrounding Caledonia Mills. Stories of Bokdans, a type of hobgoblin, ghost or trickster spirit that haunted the rural countryside, started to circulate through the inns of Caledonia Mills. 
One particular story told of a phantom horse that had been seen on the road outside the MacDonald farmhouse by a group of visitors one night. Leaving after dark, they had spotted a horse running by the roadside without a rider in the direction of the farm, but when they had turned back to get a better look, it had vanished and a strange man walked in its place instead. Curious, the men investigated the area, but found no tracks nor any sign of any horse, nor traveller, and no one had seen either on the road when asked about it. Another time, a farmer named Fraser from a neighbouring farm had seen flames coming from a farmhouse, a warm light emanating on the horizon from the fire. Panicked, he started over to the McDonald's to see if he could offer any help, only to find the farmhouse standing still in the night with no signs of fire at all. If Fraser had felt silly telling his story to anyone back in town, he was relieved to find out that two others had seen similar flames coming from the McDonald's barn and that had likewise disappeared as they had approached the courtyard. Stranger stories still told of blue flames flickering into the night sky above the farm and even a tale of ball lightning that all went some way to giving the farmhouse something of an edge for the locals. Fortunately for Alexander, None of these stories seemed to reflect too badly on his own reputation. People still visited the farm freely, and at the end of the day, strange tales had no effect on him nor his family, so he easily put them out of his mind. Until January of 1922, when events unravelled that he could not possibly ignore. Saturday, the 7th of January 1922, was a bitterly cold morning. The weather had been difficult throughout that winter and snowstorms had been frequent, with temperatures dropping into double-digit minus figures regularly. Alexander woke before Janet and Mary Ellen as usual and after wrapping up in several layers, set the fire burning in the kitchen stove, cleaned and filled the oil lamps and then stepped out into the dimly lit courtyard to head over to the barn and release the animals for the day. After the two weeks were over, when the cattle had inexplicably let themselves out of their stanchions, things had stayed where they were meant to be, and Alexander's morning routine had returned to normal. When he returned to the kitchen, Janet and Mary Ellen were awake and making breakfast. Stepping into the room, Alexander noticed something he hadn't before. In the beams that ran across the ceiling holding up the loft floorboards, a 20 centimetre long charred groove dug into the wood near the stove. Given that the stove's chimney was only six inches away, the culprit seemed obvious enough, even though the chimney had never caused any problems before. But still, thinking it wise, he stripped down the pipe, right through to the loft, cleaned it all up and reassembled it before relighting the fire. The rest of the day was entirely routine, until the night when, due to Janet feeling unwell, everyone in the McDonald household turned in a little earlier than usual. Within an hour, however, Janet was wide awake again, sure that she could smell smoke. Calling to Alexander in the small bedroom just off from the dining room where he slept, the farmer grunted as he pulled himself out of bed and stumbled towards the kitchen, pushing open the door, where he was forced sharply awake by the sight of flames flickering up the wall and around the beams in the ceiling. Acting quickly, he filled a bucket with water and tossed it over the fire, extinguishing the flames and leaving a blackened scar in its place. Whether or not it was from the residual heat or dust, Alexander wasn't too sure, but four more fires erupted in the loft over the kitchen that night. Eventually, he stopped returning to bed, choosing to sit in the kitchen instead, watching over the ceiling like an old fire guard. 
The next day, in his sleep-deprived state, he and Janet pulled up the floorboards in the loft and cleaned the whole space from top to bottom, before relaying the floor, concluding that the place was probably in need of a good spring clean. Just to be sure, that night after putting the fire out, just before turning in for bed, Alexander laid the ladder up against the farmhouse roof and climbed up to pour water down the stove chimney in order to cool it down as much as possible. It was 10pm by the time that he had climbed back down and stepped into the parlour, closed the door behind him and readied himself for bed. He had just settled himself down when, within minutes, the panicked sound of Janet's voice was ringing out through the silence of the house, convinced that she could smell smoke again. Alexander went to check around the house, but thankfully he found nothing, and putting it down to paranoia, after the night before, he went back to bed, and when Janet tried to wake him once more 20 minutes later, he was somewhat more reluctant to get up and walk about the house in the cold. It wasn't until the dog, Chief, barked, that Alexander decided it might be worth checking once more, which was rather lucky in the end, as he stepped into the kitchen, this time to find the wooden rocking chair on fire. For a second, he stared blankly at the burning piece of furniture, sitting quite alone, six feet clear of the stove, before he snapped to, paced across the kitchen, picked it up and unceremoniously tossed it out into the snow outside. Baffled and staring out at the thick smoke rising from the charred chair, he backed into the kitchen when he realised he could still hear the crackle of the flames. Turning around, he found that the couch, completely untouched just moments before, was now on fire too. Just as before, he worked quickly to pull it up to the door and tossed it out into the snow next to the rocking chair. That night, Alexander took on firewatch duties once more. But fortunately, nothing else caught fire, and the pile of furniture outside remained at just the two chairs. More fortunately... The following two nights were just as quiet, and although Alexander had been on edge during the first night, by the second, things had begun to recede back to normality. It would not last. Wednesday started quiet enough. Alexander had been getting on with the daily chores and was in the barn when Janet called out to him, breaking the still afternoon air. He hurried over to the house in time to see one of the floorboards for the loft above the kitchen on fire. Quickly, he pulled up the board and tossed it out into the snow next to the couch and rocking chair that was still outside from when he had thrown them out before. Curiously, he noticed a small scrap of cotton on the board, but he didn't have time to give it any thought. Janet was calling out to him again, drawing his attention to a second fire in the loft, which her and Mary Ellen were working together to put out with a couple of wet rags. It was the start of what would be a frantic afternoon that saw the family rushing about putting out fires across the house. Thirty minutes after the loft fires, one of the kitchen walls burst into flames, which Alexander put out with a bucket of water, only to see a new ball of fire erupt in a sparking light against the stove chimney. The fires weren't only in the kitchen either. As the afternoon drew on, fires began breaking out upstairs in the bedroom above the parlour, as well as in the small bedroom in the dining room. With all three frantically running around the house trying to put out fires, Alexander decided to send Janet and Mary Ellen to the neighbouring McGillivray farm. The McGillivrays had a telephone and could lend a good amount of help on their own. That evening had brought a strong snowstorm down upon the county, however, and travelling was slow, eventually proving too hard going for Janet, who dropped back and sent Mary Ellen ahead by herself, trudging through the knee-deep snow, holding her lantern high into the air to illuminate the ground for just over a mile. When she did finally reach the farmhouse, she got the help of Leo McGillivray and Duncan MacDonald, who agreed to follow her back to the farm 
whilst Daniel McGillivray came behind riding the horse-drawn sleigh. By the time they returned to MacDonald Farm, things in the farmhouse had finally quietened down. Alexander invited everyone into the kitchen to join him on the fire watch, and the men all sat around talking about what had been going on that evening. Just as everything seemed to have stopped for the night, and Alexander had even risked lighting the kitchen stove to make tea, a bright white flash lit the room, and blue flames appeared to ignite the curtains in the parlour. Leo ran over to the offending curtain and pulled it down, stamping the fire out. It had been a strange sight, the men all agreed. The fire had not seemed very hot at all, nor had it made much sound, though it had thrown up a lot of smoke. Leo, who had experience working in an electrical business in Ontario, thought the white flash had seemed like an electrical malfunction. But that didn't make much sense, given that the McDonald's house was not hooked up with electricity. As they sat back in the kitchen, talking over the blue flames, two small fires burst out one on the wallpaper in the dining room and another on a calendar hanging on the wall in the parlour. Finding the whole situation a little overwhelming, Daniel McGillivray decided to take the sleigh back home to call in for more help. Meanwhile, Alexander, Leo and Duncan went from room to room stamping out fires where they could, slopping buckets of water over the bedclothes and tossing burning furniture out into the ever-growing pile of scalded possessions, half buried by the falling snow. When Daniel did return, he brought with him the aid of several neighbours from the nearby farms, including Michael McGillivray, John Kenny and the brothers Alex and Colin McIsaac. Michael and John had one of the strangest stories of the night, as they had thought they had seen a hovering bare forearm and hand extending out through the parlour window as they had approached the farm on the sleigh, but when they entered the house, everyone had been busy packing in the kitchen. Realising the strangeness of the sighting, everyone decided it best to keep the news back from Alexander and Janet, who were panicked enough already. By 8am, the sun was rising over the sopping, wet farmhouse. The tired inhabitants splashed around in over three inches of water that had pulled on the floor from all the buckets that had been tossed about overnight. Though no one recorded the exact number of fires, and there's some difficulty piecing together the exact turn of events, an estimated 38 fires were put out throughout the night. If the McDonald's had any luck, it was at least in the weather which had eased following the storm. With this easier weather came easier travel, and as word spread of the strange goings-on, more and more neighbours turned up to see the farmhouse for themselves. Alexander had had enough of the place, though. As more men arrived, he enlisted their help to pack up the possessions that he had left that had not caught fire and not been tossed out into the snow, and load them on to Daniel McGilvery's sleigh. Leo McGilvery had invited the McDonald's to his house to stay, which had proved to be an invitation too good to pass up. As the sleigh dragged out into the snow-covered fields, leaving the empty house behind, Alexander, Janet and Mary Ellen let out a collective sigh of relief. The McGilveries hosted them for three days, all of which were quiet, before the McDonald's moved into an empty rental house. Alexander made his way back to the farmhouse daily, though he chose not to go inside. The cold, wet wood stood empty and still whilst he tended to the animals in the barn before taking off every evening before nightfall. The scene might have seemed a little more unsettling to Alexander if it wasn't for the continuous stream of people that constantly dropped by hoping to get a look at the mysterious Bogdan house that they had been hearing all about. News of the strange night had spread quickly around Caledonia Mills and out further across Antigonish County. Before long, 
people were hearing stories of the phantom fires in the taverns of Halifax over a hundred miles to the southeast. One of those who heard the story as it travelled through the town of Halifax was Harold B. Widden, a war veteran and journalist for the local Halifax papers, The Herald and The Evening Mail. Like any good journalist, Widden noticed the excitement in the voices of the locals as they talked about the mystery farmhouse of Caledonia Mills, and within it, he spotted a story. He took up pen and paper and wrote to his editor, suggesting the story, who replied almost immediately, telling him to investigate further. A relative of some of the earliest foreign settlers in Nova Scotia, Harold Bigelow Widden was born in Antigonish in 1888. His father, Charles, was a respected Antigonish resident who ran a shipping business, sailing cattle and farming equipment from Nova Scotia to Newfoundland. After serving as a gunner in the First World War, Harold returned to Antigonish, suffering from a gas attack, and instead of continuing with his father's shipping business, took up writing for the papers. Starting off as a sports reporter, he quickly shifted to a news correspondent for the two Halifax-based papers owned by the Nova Scotian publisher Mr W. H. Dennis. After hearing of the Macdonald Farm fire incidents, Widden got in touch with his editor, who agreed with him that the story sounded a worthy addition to the paper, and sent him off to investigate. Widden's first port of call was to speak with Alex McIsaac, who, after showing up in the morning after the events and helping the Macdonalds to pack their belongings and move to the McGilveries, had since returned to Antigonish, where he attended school. Not with a small sense for the dramatic, Widden published his first piece on the Macdonald farm on the 19th of January under the headline Antigonish Farming Community is Aroused by Mysterious Actions Believed to be the Work of Spooks. The piece gave a fairly brief history of the strange events of the farm, dating all the way back to the strange escaping cows, right up to the nights of the fires that had driven the Macdonalds out of their home. The inclusion of the word spooks in the headline near enough ensured enough interest for a follow-up piece. And sure enough, that weekend, he spent a difficult morning travelling through knee-deep snow to reach Caledonia Mills and see the house for himself. Five days later, he published a second article with a similarly provocative headline, Story of Spooks Setting Fires in Antigonish Farmer's Home Confirmed. Despite the heavy conditions of the road, many had driven to the scene, where it is believed spooks have been at work. All are convinced that incidents of a supernatural or spiritual origin have taken place. Widden had christened the Macdonald's farmhouse the House of Mystery and gave a detailed description of the house and its burnt contents, still left discarded on the snow banks outside, as well as several small fragments of burnt cotton, which he concluded looked like rags or old clothing. After carefully examining the house and following closely Dan McGilvery's description of the numerous outbreaks of fire, we could not see how anyone could have started them under the circumstances. That is, taking account of the way the house was laid off, its smallness and the very fact that there was always someone in the house where the fires broke out. And on the night of the most numerous outbreaks, there were six people in the house, when anyone attempting anything of the kind would almost certainly have been discovered. No one could offer an explanation and the case remains a mystery. Over the following days, Widden published several more pieces on the Macdonald farmhouse fires, speaking to several locals and gathering up the whispered stories that were circulating about the cause of the fires. In every story, he was keen to emphasise that the Macdonalds were a trusted, well-regarded family in the community, with no enemies, 
and no history of telling tall tales. Further capitalising on the excitement around the story, the Evening Mail and the Herald published a competition to its readers, challenging them to come up with theories as to the cause of the fires, with the top three answers receiving 15 10 and $5. All answers were to be sent to the paper's offices, addressed to the Mysterious Fires Editor. The theories flooded in and ranged from the extremely sceptical to the utterly bizarre. The most sceptical voices focused on the rags of cotton that seemed to be cropping up throughout the eyewitness testimonies, which several suggested were likely to have been used by someone to make small fires that could have been tossed about the house. The reports of blue flames further back these stories up, with readers suggesting that the fires had been caused by some kind of flammable chemical. On the other side of the debate, dozens of people wrote to the paper to suggest the presence of fairies, ghosts and witches, or unknown electrical effects caused by high-tension currents being thrown into the atmosphere. Meanwhile, the newspaper's owner, Dennis, contacted Arthur Conan Doyle to see if he would have any interest in investigating the case. After being promptly refused, however, he turned instead to Pictou-based detective Peter Owen Carroll. The former police chief of Pictou, Carroll was an old detective with a formidable reputation. Somewhat unorthodox in his methods, he had lived through a pretty wild career chasing rum runners, bootleggers and murderers throughout Pictou County. Now retired, Carroll happily accepted Dennis's offer to investigate the McDonald's farmhouse and hopped on a train as soon as he could arriving in Antigonish on the 2nd of February. Together with Widden, the couple spent a few days looking into the McDonald's backstories, as well as interviewing several suspects, which some of the locals had suggested could have been responsible for starting the fires, though they all turned out to be little more than drunks, eccentrics and outsiders, with no connection to the farmhouse whatsoever. Eventually, on Monday the 6th of February, after the weather had improved and the roads were deemed passable, the pair headed back out to the McDonald farmhouse, where they planned to set up camp in the deserted house itself in order to get to the bottom of the story. They loaded all of the camping equipment and food onto a sleigh, as well as Widden's all-important typewriter, and set off into the morning, arriving late that afternoon on a neighbouring farm where they were forced to stay the night due to an incoming snowstorm. The next morning, they set off once more, finally reaching the McDonald's new accommodation that afternoon, where they spent some time questioning the family before moving out on the final leg together with Alexander and Duncan MacDonald and Dan McGilvery, who had offered to help them set up their camp, reaching the cold, damp house later that evening. Despite all the hype in the newspaper of the overnight investigation, helped along by the postponement of the story's publication after its delivery was delayed due to the stormy weather, the group's first night holed up on the farmhouse passed by with no strange occurrences at all. In fact, the report's most exciting details revolved more around the card games that the men sat around playing rather than any stories of ghosts or mystery fires. Carol's report, however, did its best to keep the interest alive. There is absolutely no mistake about there being a mystery at Caledonia Mills. I have covered a lot of ground since coming here and I have been in here less than two days. I found the scars in the house just as described in the Herald and Mail. I discovered everyone mentioned just where they were said to be. I even found more, several more. If the public is interested in this case, I hope it will have patience. My examination of the house and of the principals so far has only made the case more mystifying to me. 
You can also say that it would give me a great deal of satisfaction to have some of the few people here who are ridiculing the mystery. I'll guarantee their minds would be in a whirl. The following morning, after only a couple of hours' sleep, Widden, Carol and Alexander MacDonald all rose early to continue the investigation, whilst Alexander went on about his duties in the barn. Carol and Widden spent the day scouring the house from top to bottom, documenting all the burn marks and looking for any sign of a cause, but nothing was forthcoming and the day passed relatively quietly. By evening, another snowstorm was set to roll in and so Alexander set off early for home, leaving the detective and reporter in the house alone. That evening was punctuated only by the return of Alexander and a couple of neighbours who, fearing the storm settling in, bought the two men a few more logs for the fire and Alex bought a stew made by Janet before the neighbours left once more. As silence settled across the pitch-black courtyard and the snow began to fall, the true isolation of the farmhouse drew in around them as the trio lit the stove and set up at the kitchen table for another night of drinking coffee and keeping watch for any strange happenings. As midnight came and went, with nothing to report, however, the group decided to call it a night and settled into bed. They'd not been asleep long when Carol woke Widden with a start, gesturing for him to keep quiet. Carol had just been nodding off when he had been jerked awake by the strange sounds of what he thought to be footsteps on the floorboards above his head. The two men listened on, straining into the silence to see if the sound would return, and then, in the dark, they heard the soft thuds return, thumping through the empty house and appearing to move down the wooden stairs and into the parlour, where they promptly stopped. Carol and Widden went to check the parlour and confirmed that they were still alone before returning to bed a new sense of unease creeping over them. Once more, Carol was pulled awake. This time, he had felt a sensation on his arm, like he had been slapped. It hadn't hurt, but he had distinctly felt the thud on his arm, all the way through several layers of shirts, sweaters, two coats and a horse rug that he had covered himself with. Looking over to Widden, Carol noticed a journalist was also sitting upright, and strangely, he had felt a similar slap on his arm too. Later, Widden wrote of the experience, both for the newspaper and a pamphlet that he would publish on the case. Instantly, I knew that something entirely new and hitherto foreign to me had caused it. Fortunately, my mind functioned quickly, in fact instantly, and I sat up. Turning to Carol, I asked him if he had hit me. I did this to simply satisfy to myself that he had not, because my impression from the very first was that no human hand had caused the blow. He was genuinely surprised. Carol was in exactly the same position that I had seen him a moment before I felt the blow. In fact, he was in such a position that he could not have touched me or even moved without my knowledge. I turned to Alexander MacDonald who was on the floor on the other side of me. He was in the same position I had seen him just before and was nearly asleep. He could not have moved or touched me without my knowledge. That is, as in the case of Carol, without my knowing it. During the 25 minutes or half an hour which witnessed the strange sounds, the footsteps, the touch on Carol's arm and the blow or impression on my arm, a feeling entirely new to me possessed me. It was simply that there was a strange presence in the house and I was filled with expectancy. The impression could not be compared with any that I'd ever experienced before. I was wide awake at the time. 15 or 20 minutes after the slap on the arm, the strange feeling had entirely disappeared from my conscious mind at least. I felt that the strange power or presence had left the place. 
This may sound incredible to some readers. Nevertheless, every word of it is absolutely true. The only thing wrong with it is that it is impossible for me to describe the impressions and occurrences adequately. Perhaps some people could. Perhaps nobody could. Startled, all three men got out of bed and searched the house with the aid of their flashlights from top to bottom. But nothing. Eventually, at around 4.30am, they retired to bed, drifting off to the sound of the snowstorm beating the walls outside. The next morning, the group rose to a dramatic fall in temperature, with temperatures reaching around minus 15 degrees centigrade. Worse, Alexandra and Widden appeared to be coming down with a cold. The house had still been damp and laying on the floor on makeshift beds of hay and rugs had taken its toll on two of the three investigators. And so, later that day, after going through the house one final time, the group made the decision to retire, figuring it little more than a death trap, or as Widden reported it in the papers, a sieve of influenza and pneumonia drafts. In a piece published in the Evening Mail on the 14th of February, Widden concluded that himself and Carol remained convinced that although the phenomena that they had witnessed had occurred in a short space of time and had been fleeting, it had been of supernatural origin, and he confirmed that they would be happy to return to the house to continue any investigation should it be necessary once more favourable weather conditions had returned. Carol's final report was published two days later, concluding, somewhat vaguely, that none of the fires at the MacDonald farm had been the work of human hands. Above the same statement, Carol and Widden published the announcement of a reward of $200, with each man paying half to anyone that could provide a satisfactory explanation to the events that had occurred on the farm that were not of supernatural or preternatural agency. The Caledonia Mills, House of Mystery, had been the talk of Nova Scotia throughout the investigation, but with the help of the detective's report that said the investigation had done little else but leave everyone baffled, the news of the strange events quickly tore across Canada and the United States as papers picked up the story, syndicating it far and wide. With every reprint, the stories grew in their spectacular details, and before long, quotes were being made up from unnamed eyewitnesses across the country. When the story was published in New England, it reached Dr. Walter Franklin Prince of the American Society for Psychical Research, who quickly found himself captivated by the whole affair. Writing to Dennis, he struck up a deal for Widden to return to the house, this time with a real psychical investigator in tow. Walter Franklin Prince, born in a small town in Maine in 1863, held the position of the principal research officer at the American Society for Psychical Research. After graduating from college, he began working in the role of minister for the Episcopal Church before studying a PhD in psychology at Yale University. Having held a long-time interest in psychic ability and having been a member of the American Society for Psychical Research, he took on the role as principal researcher in 1920, following a relatively successful career as a debunker of several spirit mediums. Prince had been reading the associated press reports in the papers of the MacDonald Farm when he decided that the case would be worthy of his attention. Following the stories to the Halifax Herald and the Evening Mail, he contacted the owner, Mr WH Dennis, and arranged a deal that would allow him to get down to the house with all of his costs covered and assistance provided by the newspaper in exchange for exclusive rights to the story. Prince agreed, provided that he was allowed to remain in control of the investigation. With business settled, 
He journeyed to Nova Scotia, arriving in Halifax on Saturday, March the 4th, where he met with Widden, Bryce Clemo, the Herald's photographer, and Donald Ritchie, the Herald's artist. Together, the men loaded up three sleighs full of gear to ensure that they would not need to run away from the house before Prince's investigation was complete. Their journey out to Caledonia Mills was immediately hampered by weather, however, as one of the worst storms of the year rolled into Nova Scotia, as freezing rain and wind hammered the desolate countryside. Stopping over with the MacDonald family on the way, Prince left it to the last minute to ask the farmer for his permission to investigate, an idea which Alexander was not that keen on. The previous investigation had brought about a lot of attention to the MacDonalds, and not all of it had been positive, with a large number of sceptics turning their backs on the family. Furthermore, the farmhouse had become inundated with tourists who, as far as Alexander was concerned, were trespassing on his farm, hoping to get a look at the famous mystery house. Whatever Prince said to him about the investigation was obviously persuasive, as not only did Alexander eventually grant the group permission to stay in the farmhouse, but he also agreed for himself and the entire family to spend some time there too, a request placed by Prince, who was hoping to replicate the original conditions when the fires had caused havoc as best they could. Later that evening, Alexander and Mary Ellen joined the group to the farmhouse where they helped the investigators to haul in the furniture that was still dumped in the snow outside and place it all back in the farmhouse in their original positions. Afterwards, Prince took the opportunity to interview Alexander and Mary Ellen before sending them home in order that they'd be able to travel before the roads became impassable. Once the McDonald's left, the investigators settled down for the evening, lighting fires in the dining room and kitchen stoves and preparing food, whilst Prince set about searching the house and setting up a series of tools and contraptions to aid them in the research. In the hallways and stairways, he hung strings of bells from skirting to skirting that he hoped would alert them to any movement. Despite Prince's intense scrutiny throughout the night, the time passed without incident, and when Widden's report finally reached Halifax, the front-page news made for quiet reading. Things improved little for a further two nights, as the poor weather made the McDonald's visits to the house fleeting and incomplete, as Janet was still unable to make it out due to her poor health. By Friday night, things were seeming like a bit of a dead rubber, when Prince suggested a new test. Hoping to pull something from the other, and out of what he called psychological curiosity, he suggested to the newspapermen that they might try a session of automatic writing. Bryce Clemo had already returned to Halifax ahead of the group in order to hand in his photographs to the paper, leaving Widden and McRitchie, who both readily agreed to give the investigators' plans a go. McRitchie took the pencil first, sitting down at the table in the kitchen as all eyes fell upon the paper in front of him. Nothing happened. Scooting McRitchie aside, Widden took his turn and sat down at the table. Prince cleared the small crude wooden table and I placed a few sheets of ordinary copy paper on it. There was a lighted candle on the windowsill in front of the table. I sat down, took my ever-sharp pencil from my vest pocket and placing my right arm and hand on the table, held the point of the pencil on the upper left-hand corner of the paper. My hand and arm relaxed. I sat with my head turned sideways towards the wall on my left. Dr Prince sat on the bed on my right-hand side. My eyes were looking in the opposite direction. Suddenly, I felt a prickly sensation in the end of some of my fingers of my right hand, 
which increased. The hand then became numb. Before I realised what was happening, the pencil began to move slowly without any effort or intention on my part. This lasted less than a minute, probably when it commenced to form circles. The motion became more rapid and my hand simply worked like a toy top over the paper. The movement became so fast and the pressure so hard that three sheets of paper were torn. Six sheets of paper had been covered in this manner when the slanting lines on the seventh sheet. It next formed various movements over the paper and stopped for a fraction of a minute. Then it began to write in large, peculiarly shaped letters. This whole experience lasted over two hours. A message seemed to be transmitted to me in this weird manner. I had no idea what was going to happen next. In fact, most of the time, I did not know what letter was coming next. At other times, I conjectured after the first letter was written what the word was going to be. But most of the time, I had absolutely no idea what was coming next. I had no control over my hand, which was numb. I had a feeling of numbness about my heart as well. And although I could appreciate what was transpiring, my mind seemed to be controlled by some unseen power. Every movement appeared to be dictated or automatic. The writing was not of my own volition. I felt sometimes as if drawn down over the table with my eyes only four or five inches from the paper. This was almost invariably when something of outstanding importance or significance was to be written. Dr Prince was an eyewitness and there were times when we were sharpening our pencils or getting more paper that my elbow shot out. My hand tugged him and after attracting his attention, the hand proceeded again with the message. At times, the movement was slow and decidedly painstaking. At others, it was incredibly rapid impetuous and eager. At times it tried to write words of the greatest significance but went through odd contortions instead and in some cases the questions were not answered. In others the sentences were never completed. The unseen power seemed to increase its influence all the time and less than 30 words of the message were written when my speech was even controlled by it. When statements of the greatest significance or importance were being written it repeated every letter and sometimes the writing stopped for a few seconds, while Dr. Prince, through my mouth, was requested to ask the communicator certain questions. Sometimes it looked as if the unseen power was so eager that it even wrote the questions down itself and answered them. Much of what Widden wrote that night remained a secret, with Widden deciding that the personal details should never be published. However, a small sample of the conversation between Prince and the writing was published. At first, Prince asked the writer if it knew who set the fires. Widden's arm scratched out a jagged yes onto the paper. When he asked if he could tell who it was, it wrote a single word, spirits. When he asked it why, however, the writing only descended into unintelligible scratches and stabs, puncturing the paper. Later, Prince asked if the writer had been the one to slap Widden and Carol on the arm during their previous investigation, to which the writing replied, yes. Again, Prince asked why. This time, the writing responded, scrawling quickly across the paper, I wanted to show them mystery fires were caused by spirits. The phantom writer also admitted to being the one who had let out the McDonald's cattle the previous spring. The writing continued on for just over two hours, as paper was placed in front of Widden, page after page. At times, the pencil had to be forcibly removed from his hand, in order to be sharpened before being placed back between his fingers to allow him to continue writing. Throughout it all, Widden said that he felt that his hand had gone numb. 
Finally, he etched the words goodbye on the paper and the writing ceased. Silence fell over the house. The final night of the investigation saw Prince stay the night in the farmhouse alone, requesting for the newspaperman to head back early without him, though it turned out to be a further quiet night. Finally, all the men were back in Antigonish, ready to re-enter civilization and hand in their reports to the newspaper. Prince was happy to hold his cards close to his chest during the initial interviews and force readers to await his full report, which was set to be published first in the Halifax Herald before he would publish it officially in the Journal for the American Society for Psychical Research. The other men were less keen to wait. Climo had already said his piece to the paper upon his return, convinced that the events at the farm had been supernatural in origin. Widden, too, had been convinced. His channeling of automatic writing had seemingly flipped a switch for the journalist, who felt the test to have been a life-altering event. Finally, Prince's official report was published on the 16th of March, and made for interesting reading, though perhaps its conclusion left neither side, the sceptics nor the believers, particularly happy. In respects to the fires, he wrote that he was convinced that they had been set by human hands, citing that the fires had all appeared to have been lit at a similar height that had never been higher than five feet from the floor, all of which would have been within reach of Mary Ellen. Of the few examples that were higher than five feet, all had evidence of cotton racks being involved, which Prince decided could have easily been thrown. The fact that no fires had ever started since the family had left the house also led to this conclusion. He also noted that bottles of flammable fluid like kerosene, turpentine and separator oil were available in the kitchen, though, as some of the believers pointed out, they could easily have been placed there during any of the investigations. Despite Prince's initial conclusion, he went on to suggest that, although the fires were started by human hands, they were also started without moral guilt. Essentially, Prince believed that Mary Ellen had started the fires. However, she had been influenced to do so either through a form of hysteria or an altered state of consciousness that had not allowed her to ever remember doing so. His second hypothesis was that Mary Ellen had been possessed by a discarnate intelligence that had influenced her to set the fires entirely against her own volition. Concerning the sounds heard by Wynne and Carol and the sensations of being slapped, Prince concluded that these were probably supernormal experiences due to causes which psychical research had not yet determined. As far as the automatic writing was concerned, he wrote that the experience was absolutely valid psychological fact, which possibly, though not yet probably, transcends the purely psychological. The success of this test gave further credence, he thought, to the possession hypothesis. Despite its fairly even-handed conclusion, especially considering it alluded quite openly to the idea that things were likely supernatural, many of the locals disagreed with the report, suggesting that Mary Ellen had had a hand in starting the fires. Carroll especially disagreed, publishing a scathing rebuttal in the newspapers, himself convinced that Mary Ellen would have simply not been able to start any of the fires without being caught by the people in the house with her. The house was simply too small, he thought, and too crowded for her to avoid their watchful eyes. Widden also published his own account of events in a pamphlet which he wrote about his experiences and addressed those sceptical of the automatic writing test. Some people, unacquainted with the circumstances, has intimated that I was hypnotised or mesmerised. This is not true, 
As a matter of fact, all of those present at the time, including Dr. Prince, were greatly surprised when the unseen power manifested itself in this manner. Evidential statements, of which neither Dr. Prince nor I had any previous knowledge, were written, and I am forced to believe that the principal purported spirit communicator was extremely eager to communicate with someone concerning the mysterious happenings on the MacDonald homestead, and I was simply used as an instrument. In all conclusions, everyone deemed the MacDonalds entirely free of guilt, possibly in order to help them restore their local reputation. In his pamphlet, Widden wrote, In my opinion, the MacDonalds are to be exonerated, which means that the unfastening of the cows, the mysterious fires, and my own strange experiences were caused by an unseen power, spirits. If Dr. Prince's theory is correct, that one member of the family, in an abnormal psychic state, was used as an instrument to set the fires, then she, in my opinion, was no more responsible for these acts than was I while under the strange influence for over two hours. Following the publishing of Prince's report, the press excitement for the Macdonald farm slowly began to dwindle, though the tourists still flowed onto the farm daily, eventually leading Alexander to put up a sign threatening to prosecute trespassers. The Macdonalds did move back into the farmhouse for a short period, though after two fires started shortly after, they decided it was for the best to simply leave for good. Carol set up a speaking tour across Canada and the United States, and he managed to persuade Mary Ellen to join him, where the two planned to give their side of the story to packed halls. However, after the press had abandoned the story, public interest quickly waned, leading to lacklustre ticket sales. Within weeks, the gig was called off early, and the pair quietly returned to Nova Scotia. Mary Ellen found herself bullied often in Antigonish, where she worked for a while as a domestic servant. In October of 1922, Seven months after Prince's report, she was sent to the principal hospital for the insane of Nova Scotia after being arrested for trying to burn down a barn. Released four years later, she took a job washing dishes in a Chinese restaurant until she was arrested once more a year later for vagrancy. Released six months later, records of Mary Ellen disappear. Alexander MacDonald died of pneumonia just over a year after the report's publication, aged 72, followed by Janet, nine years later, aged 81. Harold Widden published his own pamphlet about the story, convinced that the entire affair had been supernormal, concluding that the events had changed his life. His mind, he said, had been revolutionised. He described it as having been stone blind with a strange light giving him sight. I will, as a result, believe to the hour of my death, at least, that the fires in Alexander MacDonald's house and the mysterious unfastening of his cattle were caused by spirits. After appearing to have changed her name, there is a trail of evidence that sees Mary Ellen live a full life until her death in 1987, aged 64. Thankfully, she seems to have managed to escape the legacy that initially followed her to the asylum in her earlier years. The mystery fires placed long behind her. So that was the story of Mary Ellen and the haunting of Caledonia Mills. And I'll talk a little bit more about that after this short advert break. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. 
Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So an interesting story. I suppose I should point out, uh, if you recognised uh, the name uh, Walter Franklin Prince... That was because he was actually from the last episode. He was one of the judges uh, for the Mina Crandon case um, with the Scientific American. And that's actually how I came across this story when I was um, reading into the Mina Crandon case. I, I came across this story and I just thought, oh, that's a cool one. So I, I just pretty much just carried on reading about Prince. But if you remember Prince, um, something I found interesting was that it was Prince who sided mainly with Houdini in the Mina Crandon story. And he's a fairly sceptical member of the American Society for Psychical Research. He actually describes himself as um, approaching investigations with a, a sceptical bent. And, you know, he, he spent a, a considerable amount of time uh, debunking uh, spiritual mediums. And so I thought that was quite interesting because in this case, despite the fact that he's clearly quite a sceptic, um, he, I thought, wrote a fairly positive report on the side of the believers, you know, that uh, uh, the, the thought it was supernatural. You know, he, he essentially concluded that it was either a, a spiritual possession or uh, some sort of form of hysteria. But he, the fact that he... Um, then also said that he felt that the the touch of the arms on Carol and Widden was probably supernatural, and the spiritual the automatic writing as well um, was a some sort of spirit thing. He he basically said you know that all of that supported the idea of a possession. So he seemed to still sort of suggest you know that it, the whole thing was supernatural, which was quite surprising given that his reputation was essentially one of a skeptic. I found it interesting that he came across, say, quite positive uh, for the side of the believers. Strangely, people didn't seem to really like the report. And uh, there were bits in it that I found kind of silly as well. Like some of his report, he said the, about chemicals um, being found in the kitchen. But I, I thought it was interesting that all the chemicals were the sorts of things that you might you know, use in camping equipment, which by that point, there'd been two like, groups that had camped there. And so to me... I. I I think they would have noticed it a lot earlier. Like, like, why didn't Widden's group notice this stuff during the first investigation if it had already been there? That said, do I believe that this was a spirit possession starting mystical fires? Um, no, I, I, I don't think I do. I think more than likely it probably was Mary Ellen. It's quite interesting actually trying to find out about Mary Ellen because 
Not a lot of people talk about her in the contemporary reports. The, the few people that did talk about her when she was younger gave quite conflicting ideas. Some said that she was like kind of a simple child that was not quite um, you know, intellectually developed and others didn't mention that at all. And if you trace her life, um, she seemed to have got on just fine after a pretty rough start, after she was arrested a couple of times for vagrancy and things like that. She seemed to then continue her the rest of her life quite fine. So, you know, I'm not sure if I believe those earlier reports that saying that she was, you know, sort of backwards. Um, but even if she was, you know, what difference does that make? I mean, I suppose, you know, she, she could have just been naughty and, and wanting attention or something to have wanted to start the fires. I mean, for me, I think the most likely outcome is that, uh, you know, she was a, a young child with elderly parents uh, or elderly adoptive parents who had moved from a sort of busy life to literally the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, at 12 years old. Like I say, she's just a, a lonely 12-year-old girl with two parents, both in their 70s at this point. You know, may, I think she was probably just bored. Um, and, and that's, I think, the, the most simple solution to it. Um, say, if it wasn't for the prince element, I would definitely say that 100%. The one thing I do find really interesting about this case is that Prince wasn't duped by a lot of essentially professional dupers uh, with the sort of spiritualist mediums. He he called out a lot of those and yet he was supposed to believe here that he was duped by a journalist, uh, you know, with no sort of medium uh, quote-unquote skills. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, why did he believe that? so readily when he was so so quick to call out and uh, debunk so many professional mediums it's, it's it's interesting but yeah otherwise you know that 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 element i find quite fascinating anyway i don't know i think that that probably was the case the fact that she was eventually arrested trying to burn down a barn you, know, you could say well maybe the spirit followed her around and tried to burn the barn down or you could say that maybe she just had a bit of a fascination with burning things and i think that's probably the case the one thing that sort of does go against that, in my mind, is that the house was relatively small. And at times there were like six people in one room, along with Mary Ellen, and the fires were still starting. That sort of says to me that one of them should have seen her do that. And and, and I think that's what the locals were mainly upset about, is that they, they all thought that if Mary Ellen had any hand in it, they would have definitely seen her and they they, they swore blind that they, they didn't. I don't know. I think it's very easy to, once people are looking for the fires, they're not going to be looking towards Mary Ellen. They're going to be looking, you know, in all the corners and the walls, sort of slightly panicked maybe, you know, high alert looking for these fires. They're not going to be paying attention to Mary Ellen who then would have had the perfect opportunity to set fires all over the place. You know, she was burning small pieces of rag in like dipped in turpentine or something like that, which I think she probably was doing. She could definitely have got away with that, I think. I also think it's interesting that there was all those fires, but they seem to be put out very easily, which again says to me, if someone is dipping small pieces of rag in something flammable and then burning it and throwing it, those are fires that are going to be easily stomped out and slapped out, uh, you know, rather than the wood actually burning. So I do think most of it leans towards Mary Ellen probably having some sort of pyromaniacal uh, interest. But who knows, you know, uh, 
Maybe it was a ghost. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, you can email me at contact at darkhistories.com or you can get in touch uh, via social media. Uh, DM me. Uh, all of the links to that are in the show notes and on the website, darkhistories.com. As is all the ways that you can support the show if you would like to do so. I have a Patreon, which uh, you know is a, a monthly donation if you're interested in that. And if not, there are plenty of other ways you can support there's merch, there's books, but there's even like non-financial ways like just leaving a review is always really helpful. So yeah, all those things anyway are in the show notes and on the website darkhistories.com. Thank you very much for listening as always. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, take care. Sleep tight. Sleep tight.